Chapter Forty Four of Martin Eden by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Forty Four. Mister Morse met Martin in the office of the Hotel Metropole. Whether he had happened there just casually, intent on other affairs, or whether he had come there for the direct purpose of inviting him to dinner, Martin never could quite make up his mind, though he inclined toward the second hypothesis. At any rate, invited to dinner he was by Mr. Morse, Ruth's father, who had forbidden him the house and broken off the engagement. Martin was not angry. He was not even on his dignity. He tolerated Mr. Morse, wondering the while how it felt to eat such humble pie. He did not decline the invitation. Instead, he put it off with vagueness and indefiniteness, and inquired after the family. Particularly after Mrs. Morse and Ruth, he spoke her name without hesitancy. Naturally, though secretly surprised that he had had no inward quiver, no old familiar increase of pulse and warm surge of blood. He had many invitations to dinner, some of which he accepted. Persons got themselves introduced to him in order to invite him to dinner, and he went on puzzling over the little thing that was becoming a great thing. Bernard Higginbotham invited him to dinner. He puzzled the harder. He remembered the days of his desperate starvation when no one invited him to dinner. That was the time he needed dinners, and went weak and faint for lack of them, and lost weight from sheer famine. That was the paradox of it. When he wanted dinners, no one gave them to him, and now that he could buy a hundred thousand dinners and was losing his appetite. Dinners were thrust upon him right and left, but why? There was no justice in it, no merit on his part. He was no different. All the work he had done was even at that time work performed. Mister and Missus Morse had condemned him for an idler and a shirk, and through Ruth had urged that he take a clerk's position in an office. Furthermore, they had been aware of his work performed. Manuscript after manuscript of his had been turned over to them by Ruth. They had read them. It was the very same work that had put his name in all the papers, and it was his name being in all the papers that led them to invite him. One thing was certain: the Morses had not cared to have him for himself or for his work. Therefore, they could not want him now for himself or for his work, but for the fame that was his, because he was somebody amongst men, and why not? Because he had a hundred thousand dollars or so, that was the way bourgeois society valued a man, and who was he to expect it otherwise? But he was proud; he disdained such valuation. He desired to be valued for himself or for his work, which, after all, was an expression of himself. That was the way Lizzie valued him. The work with her did not even count; she valued him himself. That was the way Jimmy the plumber and all the old gang valued him. That had been proved often enough in the days when he ran with them. It had been proved that Sunday at Shell Mound Park, his work could go hang. What they liked and were willing to scrap for was just Mart Eden, one of the bunch and a pretty good guy. Then there was Ruth. She had liked him for himself. That was indisputable. And yet, much as she had liked him, she had liked the bourgeois standard of valuation more. She opposed his writing, and principally, it seemed to him, 
because it did not earn money. That had been her criticism of his love cycle. She too had urged him to get a job. It was true, she refined it to position, but it meant the same thing, and in his own mind the old nomenclature stuck. He had read her all that he wrote, poems, stories, essays, wiki-wiki, the shame of the sun, everything, and she had always and consistently urged him to get a job, to go to work, good God, as if he hadn't been working, robbing sleep, exhausting life, in order to be worthy of her. So the little thing grew bigger. He was healthy and normal, ate regularly, slept long hours, and yet the growing little thing was becoming an obsession, work performed. The phrase haunted his brain. He sat opposite Bernard Higginbotham at a heavy Sunday dinner over Higginbotham's cash store, and it was all he could do to restrain himself from shouting out, It was work performed, and now you feed me when then you let me starve, forbade me your house, and damned me because I wouldn't get a job, and the work was already done, all done, and now when I speak, you check the thought unuttered on your lips and hang on my lips and pay respectful attention to whatever I choose to say. I tell you your party is rotten and filled with grafters, and instead of flying into a rage you hum and haw and admit there is a great deal in what I say, and why, because I'm famous because I've a lot of money, not because I'm Martin Eden, a pretty good fellow and not particularly a fool. I could tell you the moon is made of green cheese, and you would subscribe to the notion, at least you would not repudiate it, because I've got dollars, mountains of them. And it was all done long ago, it was work performed, I tell you, when you spat upon me as the dirt under your feet. But Martin did not shout out. The thought gnawed in his brain, an unceasing torment, while he smiled and succeeded in being tolerant. As he grew silent, Bernard Higginbotham got the reins and did the talking. He was a success himself, and proud of it. He was self-made. No one had helped him. He owed no man. He was fulfilling his duty as a citizen and bringing up a large family. And there was Higginbotham's cash store, that monument of his own industry and ability. He loved Higginbotham's cash store, as some men love their wives. He opened up his heart to Martin, showed with what keenness and with what enormous planning he had made the store. And he had plans for it, ambitious plans. The neighborhood was growing up fast. The store was really too small. If he had more room, he would be able to put in a score of labor-saving and money-saving improvements. And he would do it yet. He was straining with every effort for the day when he could buy the adjoining lot and put up another two-story frame building. The upstairs he could rent, and the whole ground floor of both buildings would be Higginbotham's cash store. His eyes glistened when he spoke of the new sign that would stretch clear across both buildings. Martin forgot to listen. The refrain of work performed in his own brain was drowning the other's clatter. The refrain maddened him, and he tried to escape from it. "'How much did you say it would cost?' he asked suddenly. His brother-in-law paused in the middle of an expatiation on the business opportunities of the neighborhood. He hadn't said how much it would cost, but he knew. He had figured it out a score of times. "'At the way lumber is now,' he said, four thousand could do it. 
including the sign? I didn't count on that. It'd just have to come, once the building was there. And the ground. Three thousand more. He leaned forward, licking his lips, nervously spreading and closing his fingers, while he watched Martin write a check. When it was passed over to him, he glanced at the amount. Seven thousand dollars. I, I can't afford to pay more than six percent, he said huskily. Martin wanted to laugh, but instead demanded, How much would that be? Let me see. Six percent. Six times seven. Four hundred and twenty. That would be thirty-five dollars a month, wouldn't it? Higginbotham nodded. Then, if you've no objection, we'll arrange it this way. Martin glanced at Gertrude. You can have the principal to keep for yourself, if you'll use thirty-five dollars a month for cooking and washing and scrubbing. The seven thousand is yours, if you'll guarantee that Gertrude does no more drudgery. Is it a go? Mr. Higginbotham swallowed hard. That his wife should do no more housework was an affront to his thrifty soul. The magnificent present was the coating of a pill, a bitter pill. That his wife should not work, it gagged him. All right, then, Martin said. I'll pay the thirty-five a month, and— He reached across the table for the check, but Bernard Higginbotham got his hand on it first, crying, I accept, I accept. When Martin got on the electric car, he was very sick and tired. He looked up at the assertive sign. The swine, he groaned. The swine, the swine. When Mackintosh's magazine published The Palmist, featuring it with decorations by Berthier and with two pictures by Wen, Hermann von Schmidt forgot that he had called the verses obscene. He announced that his wife had inspired the poem, saw to it that the news reached the ears of a reporter, and submitted to an interview by a staff writer who was accompanied by a staff photographer and a staff artist. The result was a full page in a Sunday supplement, filled with photographs and idealized drawings of Marion, with many intimate details of Martin Eden and his family, and with the full text of the palmist, in large type, and republished by special permission of Mackintosh's magazine. It caused quite a stir in the neighborhood, and good housewives were proud to have the acquaintance of the great writer's sister, while those who had not made haste to cultivate it. Hermann von Schmidt chuckled in his little repair shop and decided to order a new lathe. "'Better than advertising,' he told Marian, "'and it costs nothing.' "'We'd better have him to dinner,' she suggested." And to dinner Martin came, making himself agreeable with the fat wholesale butcher and his fatter wife. Important folk, they, likely to be of use to a rising young man like Hermann von Schmidt. No less a bait, however, had been required to draw them to his house than his great brother-in-law. Another man at table, who had swallowed the same bait, was the superintendent of the Pacific Coast Agencies for the Asa Bicycle Company. Him von Schmidt desired to please and propitiate, because from him could be obtained the Oakland agency for the bicycle. So Hermann von Schmidt found it a goodly asset to have Martin for a brother-in-law. But in his heart of hearts he couldn't understand where it all came in. In the silent watches of the night, while his wife slept, he had floundered through Martin's books and poems, and decided that the world was a fool to buy them. And in his heart of hearts, Martin understood the situation only too well. 
as he leaned back and gloated at von Schmidt's head, in fancy punching it well nigh off of him, sending blow after blow home just right, the chuckle-headed Dutchman. One thing he did like about him, however, poor as he was, and determined to rise as he was, he nevertheless hired one servant to take the heavy work off of Marion's hands. Martin talked with the superintendent of the ASA agencies, and after dinner he drew him aside with Herman, whom he backed financially for the best bicycle store with fittings in Oakland. He went further, and in a private talk with Herman, told him to keep his eyes open for an automobile agency and garage, for there was no reason that he should not be able to run both establishments successfully. With tears in her eyes and her arms around his neck, Marion, at parting, told Martin how much she loved him and always had loved him. It was true, there was a perceptible halt midway in her assertion, which she glossed over with more tears and kisses and incoherent stammerings, and which Martin inferred to be her appeal for forgiveness for the time she had lacked faith in him and insisted on his getting a job. "'He can't never keep his money, that's sure,' Hermann von Schmidt confided to his wife. He got mad when I spoke of interest, and he said damn the principal, and if I mentioned it again he'd punch my Dutch head off. That's what he said, my Dutch head. But he's all right, even if he ain't no business man. He's given me my chance, and he's all right. Invitations for dinner poured in on Martin, and the more they poured, the more he puzzled. He sat, the guest of honor, at an Arden Club banquet, with men of note whom he had heard about and read about all his life, and they told him how, when they had read The Ring of Bells in the Transcontinental, and The Perry and the Pearl in the Hornet, they had immediately picked him for a winner. My God, and I was hungry and in rags, he thought to himself. Why didn't you give me a dinner then? Then was the time. It was work performed. If you are feeding me now for work performed, why did you not feed me then when I needed it? Not one word in the ring of bells, nor in the parry and the pearl, has been changed. No, you're not feeding me now for work performed. You are feeding me because everybody else is feeding me, and because it is an honor to feed me. You are feeding me now because you are herd animals, because you are part of the mob because the one blind automatic thought in the mob mind just now is to feed me. And where does Martin Eden and the work of Martin Eden performed come in in all this? He asked himself plaintively, then arose to respond cleverly and wittily to a clever and witty toast. So it went, wherever he happened to be, at the press club, at the Redwood Club, at pink teas and literary gatherings, always were remembered the ring of bells and the parry and the pearl when they were first published and always was martin's maddening and unuttered demand why didn't you feed me then it was work performed the ring of bells and the parry of the pearl are not changed one iota they are just as artistic just as worth while then as now but you are not feeding me for their sake nor for the sake of anything else i have written you're feeding me because it is the style of feeding just now, because the whole mob is crazy with the idea of feeding Martin Eden. And often, at such times, he would abruptly see slouch in among the company a young hoodlum in square-cut coat and under a stiff-rimmed Stetson hat, 
It happened to him at the Galena Society in Oakland one afternoon. As he rose from his chair and stepped forward across the platform, he saw stalk through the wide door at the rear of the great room, the young hoodlum with the square-cut coat and stiff-rim hat. Five hundred fashionably gowned women turned their heads, so intent and steadfast was Martin's gaze, to see what he was seeing. But they saw only the empty center aisle. He saw the young tough lurching down that aisle, and wondered if he would remove the stiff rim, which never yet had he seen him without. Straight down the aisle he came, and up the platform. Martin could have wept over that youthful shade of himself, when he thought of all that lay before him. Across the platform he swaggered, right up to Martin, and into the foreground of Martin's consciousness disappeared. The five hundred women applauded softly with gloved hands, seeking to encourage the bashful great man who was their guest. And Martin shook the vision from his brain, smiled, and began to speak. The superintendent of schools, good old man, stopped Martin on the street and remembered him, recalling seances in his office when Martin was expelled from school for fighting. "'I read your Ring of the Bells in one of the magazines quite a time ago,' he said. It was as good as Poe. Splendid, I said at the time. Splendid. Yes, and twice in the months that followed you passed me on the street and did not know me, Martin almost said aloud. Each time I was hungry and heading for the pawnbroker. Yet it was work performed. You did not know me then. Why do you know me now? I was remarking to my wife only the other day, the other was saying. Wouldn't it be a good idea to have you out to dinner sometime? And she quite agreed with me. Yes, she quite agreed with me. Dinner, Martin said so sharply that it was almost a snarl. Why, yes, yes, dinner, you know, just potluck with us, with your old superintendent, you rascal. He uttered nervously, poking Martin in an attempt at jocular fellowship. Martin went down the street in a daze. He stopped at the corner and looked about him vacantly. Well, I'll be damned, he murmured at last. The old fellow was afraid of me. End of chapter 44